Good morning. Can you hear me? All right, great. Got a couple wires with me, so. Well, I wanted to begin by introducing myself. For those I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Ange Sprockfried. Most of you here know me since I married into the Renew community, marrying Dwayne Freed three and a half years ago. But um, what you might not know about me is if you would have known me just five years ago, um, I never thought I would have married Dwayne or someone like him or be standing here today telling you about it. And if you would have known me just eight years ago, if you, were and I, if you and I were friends, you might have been arrested with me. But that's getting a little ahead of myself in my personal narrative I'll be sharing with you today. And I just wanted to uh, start by referencing this whole thing as my journey of justice. And no, it's not an excuse to have a captive audience show baby pictures of our son, Justice whom we name, okay, maybe one. <laughs> but I'm part of what's also called, casually called the Justice League here at Renew. And it's a group of folks and friends in the struggle who get together periodically to discuss justice issues, as well as ways we can be actively involved and participate in that struggle together. And so as a result, Doug asked me to share my story with you today. And I'm really privileged and honored to be here to do that. Not only to share a story, but to be changed and to have God speak to me and through me um, as we both individually and collectively reflect on the area of justice together. So when JR kicked off the series on Just Living about a month ago, he talked about the emotionality that comes from this topic. And oftentimes, justice issues brings more defensiveness and division than peace and reconciliation. These topics have often brought about um, pain, personal and maybe a generational, political, or societal level pain um, that touches on the past as well as the present. So I want to acknowledge the emotions as well as address what inevitably will come as I speak, the tears. Although I've preached on various variations of this topic before, because it's a passion I've had for a long time, um, I've never been able to speak about my experience and understanding of racism and reconciliation without crying. So I don't apologize for crying, but rather I preface this as an explanation that this is speaking from the very depths of who I am. And I'm learning to embrace that, the power and the strength behind the vulnerability and the authenticity that comes with that. So with that said, let's dive in and start with God's word. So would you stand with me as the scriptures are read and we pray. My readers are Jen Seiler and Tina Weaver.
The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and leave your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So reading Galatians 3, 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinary until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinary. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the great I am, creator, counselor, healer, hope, provider, protector, peace. The list goes on, God. As I share this morning, I pray it would be you speaking to me and through me. May your Holy Spirit be present and active in our hearts and minds, and your Son receive all the glory. For even though I'm created in your image, I'm also broken wounded and weak. So as Leonard Cohen's anthem sings, so shall I. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. God, you are the light of the world. Shine through me now. Amen. may be seated. I chose these two scripture passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, to show the arc of justice throughout the Bible, but also throughout all of time and creation. Central to both passages is what has been said from the beginning of our journey together, that this is about joining the very heart and nature of God, not about causes or starting movements. God's been in this business of restoring rightness and righting wrongs since the fall of creation. For me, justice is just about joining him in that good work of reconciliation and redemption. Justice reconciles us to God, others, and creation. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. But we're all aware of ways that this is not our present reality. Oftentimes our definition of justice is based on what it's not, rather than what it is. So what are some current examples of injustice in our world today regarding racism in our culture and country? 
Well, I'll draw your attention to just two news items that you may have been aware of recently. The first one um, is the Oklahoma execution air, in which an experimental way of execution was tried on an inmate and failed um, miserably and considered de dehumanizing um, because it took so long for him to die. As a result, they postponed the execution that was scheduled after him. <clears throat> I'll share some links in my going forward email afterwards and information and more resources, but Michelle Alexander and Brian Stevenson have been spokespersons for the hard truth about our criminal justice system here in the United States. It's a system that boasts the highest incarceration rate in the world. Nearly one in 100 Americans is behind bars. One third of African American males is currently in jail or on probation or parole. And one out of six Latino males will be incarcerated in some time in his lifetime. <clears throat> Alexander says, no one should be reduced to the worst thing they've ever done. All of us are better than the worst thing we've ever done. And there's more to us as human beings, as children of God, than the worst thing we've ever committed. Also, you may have heard about the recent news story of the owner of the LA Clippers, who has since been banned for life by the NBA, for telling his girlfriend not to post photographs of herself with African Americans or bring them to the game involving the basketball team. Then after the outcry of multiple people in the media, when he went to issue his public apology, he ended up insulting Magic Johnson personally and digging a deeper hole for himself. Barack Obama, our first president of color, said that the comments were incredibly offensive and racist. Obama said the recording was an example of the US continuing to wrestle with the legacy of racism, slavery and segregation, and urged Americans to be steady and clear in denouncing discrimination. So racism is alive and active in our world today. But how did I come to adopt this as my issue? Well, before I get into that, similar to last gathering when the speaker Steve stood here confessing his love for Venn diagrams as math teacher, you need to know that I don't stand before you as a biblical scholar or a sociologist. I'm a counseling psychologist. So sorry for those of you who may feel like a lab rat right now, but I'm going to show pictures on the screen. I'm going to ask you to write down what you see. All right, now let's roll back through those slides and you can call your answers out out loud. Two people. Two people. Sarah, a, vase. a vase. So if you focus on the black, you may see profiles facing each other. If you focus on the white, you may see a vase or a candlestick or a 
something else. I don't know. Um, next one. An old woman. A young woman. Correct. Um, okay, we'll start with the old woman. Her chin, I'm going to have to point. Her chin would be here. And her mouth here. And her nose. It's a profile. If you see a young woman, this is her choker or necklace. This is her jaw. And these are her eyelashes looking away with a smaller nose with a feather up in her hair. You see it? You see it? Okay. Last one. A mallard duck. Or a rabbit. Rabbit, you have to turn to the side to see this way with the ears. And the duck is looking at me. Now, the point of this little exercise is not so I can psychoanalyze you all, but rather to bring awareness of perspective. The experiences we have and how we perceive them shape us. It's not right or wrong. It's how we're hardwired as humans, how our brain functions to categorize and label and seek to understand things in this world. So the problem with racism is not really about seeing the differences between us as humans, because there are both perceived and real differences. The problem comes when we assign worth or value to a people group that's either less than or more than greater than oneself. Racism is an example of this. But because of God's creativity, what if we were to see our differences from a different perspective? You have may, may have heard it said that when God created Adam and Eve, he created humanity in the Mago Dei, the image of God. Humanity reflects God. So for this perspective, I use the illustration of a hand mirror. We all individually reflect our creator. But now consider taking this analogy a step further. This is a 2D, but God is 3D in a different dimension. dimension. So we don't just reflect God, but we might reflect God's nature as the diversity, the depth, the mystery, the beauty of him as well, which is in the context of the whole, not just each individually. Each of us might contain an aspect or an element of God, but it's best seen um, in cohesion and in the whole of the group. So without the diversity and differences between us, we would miss out on much of who God is and how he reveals to himself to us in the world, like a prism. So I'll, I'll leave a moment to ponder this, to reflect on it, and you can write down any additional thoughts or feelings that may come up for you.
Now, with that frame of reference and insight into my perspective I'm coming from in appreciating races and differences, I'm going to jump from the theoretical and cerebral to the personal and the subjective, my story. I was born and raised the daughter of an American Baptist pastor in the Midwest, the breadbasket in the Bible belt of our country. My, my communities growing up from Montana to Nebraska to Kansas were so homogenous and monocultural that, to my knowledge, I honestly cannot remember seeing different races in my hometowns until I was in high school. But it was during this psychological development period of role identity versus role confusion, as Eric Erickson calls it, that God interceded into my life and opened my eyes to the reality of racism and gave me a heart, his heart, for reconciliation. I was going to be a sophomore in high school, and I joined a community youth group called Teens for Christ on a mission trip down to Cary, Mississippi. We were going to do construction projects of painting and maintenance work on the homes there for about a week. And at that time, Cary was located in the poorest county in the nation. So this trip was an exposure to the harsh realities of those who came from a different culture and class and background than I came from growing up as a white Midwestern girl rather than a black, someone of, of black in the deep south. It was the last evening of our time there and our group was having a worship and reflection and I can't explain it, but I call it the Holy Spirit came and just cut me like a knife to the core and um, left me wide open. Um, I don't know what it looked like from the outside. I was probably like weeping and wailing and screaming. Um, but in the inside, it was fire. And it lasted for a long time. And I couldn't control myself. I just remember thinking, I will never be the same again. And I haven't been. <laughs> In hindsight, I consider that the catalyst or the origin of my passion, this devotion I have to racial reconciliation and my journey of justice. But it continued throughout high school as I took a college class in general psychology. And one day as I was reading the textbook, the words jumped off the page, similar to the, what I experience when I read the Bible sometimes. And it said, a social psychologist is one who seeks the roots of ethnic prejudice and helps find ways to eradicate it. And I knew, like, this is my call, God's call, my vocation. Um, so I pursued that passionately in my careers and college choices and future decisions and turns. It's what led me to Pennsylvania as I chose to attend Eastern University in St. David's because of their emphasis in social justice. And my mom even used the Genesis 12 verse as my life verse and printed it on my graduation cake 
that said go from your country and leave your people in your father's household to the land I will show you. So I left my homeland and moved halfway across the country. Eastern's mission statement is faith, reason, and justice. And it was an environment that's truly lived it out with alumni such as Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. As an entering freshman, I had no idea I would one day be working alongside these men and many other amazing people when I chose to create my own major of community and cross-cultural psychology with a minor in leadership. In 2002, as a sophomore, I had the rare opportunity to do a study abroad program in Cape Town, South Africa. I went and lived there for almost six months, which broadened my vision to what God's call for my life was in the areas of peace, justice, and reconciliation. In case you're unaware of the class or the caste system of South Africa during apartheid, it was one in which they divided their society into three classes, all based on race, whites, coloreds, and blacks. Whites were the European colonizers who lived in the city and had the most economic and political power. Coloreds were those of any color or mixed race and seen as second-class citizens, and they lived in the suburbs around the city. And blacks were the original tribal people who were pushed to the periphery of society and lived in the townships or slums on the outskirts of the city. I, of course, fell into the top tier, but the other two students I traveled there with from Eastern were mulatto, or what South, Af South Africans would call colored, and black. Traveling with them allowed me to experience what we were exposed to and how we were received as well, since we pretty much fell into every, all three categories. And we did everything together. But we weren't housed together. I'd chosen to live in a South African colored community um, against the advice of the host school because they preferred to house me in a safer community. But my host mom, Lorraine, took me in as her own daughter. The first day that I was there, she took me around to all the community leaders, including the drug lord who lived next door, and introduced me. She said to everyone we met, this is my daughter, and I expect you to treat her as such. I could tell you numerous stories from my time living there, but for the sake of time and focus on the topic, I'll narrow it down to just a couple, and you can ask me in person if you're interested later for more. Since I was a student there, I focused my studies on the church and racism. I was intentional about meeting and listening to and learning from as many different people groups and a variety of perspectives as I could to gain a better understanding on the society of apartheid and the role that the church played. One Sunday, I traveled with a church prayer ministry team into the black community, which is basically a shanty town out, outside of Cape Town, to visit the sick and pray for healing. We entered this one tin, board, tin cardboard box of a home to find a frail black woman laying on a mat on the dirt floor. It took me a while to adjust my eyes to the light and my nose to the smell, but when I could see her, she was visibly excited that I was there. And the person with me translated, since I didn't understand her tribal language, and she asked me to pray for her. 
and I was about to when the translator continued to say, she's so pleased that you are here because she knows that now God will hear your prayer because God is white and heaven and English is the language of heaven. I was so shocked that she said this, that she would actually believe this, that I was speechless. I also spent a week living in this same township, Kailicha, which had a 99% unemployment rate. My host family was a mother and father of 10 children with twins on the way, and I slept in a bed, which I shared with the oldest daughter, and the other family members shared just two other beds or rotated to family and friends in the community on a regular basis. The first night I was there, someone tried to steal the family car, which was one of the only vehicles in the area of the township, and shot the dog outside of our door. And I remember not being afraid, knowing God was completely in control, and even if something bad were to happen, he would use it for his glory. But as my week came to an end, I invited the oldest two daughters to join me in coming back to the colored community or my home for the weekend. And we traveled by train to see my house mom. A a funny side story about the train ride is when I went to purchase the tickets, I was in college student mentality. So I just wanted to get the cheapest ticket. But being a white person, I wasn't allowed to purchase third class tickets. So I bought three first-class tickets for myself and my black sisters. But when we got on the platform, I didn't know which way the train was facing. So the last minute, we just guessed and hopped into the end car, which ended up being the third-class third class car anyway. And I was the only white person and received a lot of stares. But I enjoyed the journey, along with the people and the chickens that joined us. (laughs) When we reached Lorraine's, she put on a spit fry, which in South Africa is a traditional uh, feast, a rotisserie style cooking lamb, and it's over an open pit fire to celebrate my homecoming since she missed me after a week of being away. I introduced her and the family, friends, and community members who came over to my black sisters, and we really enjoyed our weekend there together. But afterwards, I found out that not only was it the first time for my black sisters to ride a train, but they'd never been out of the township before. And Lorraine, a colored, had never had black people in her home before. Also studied at Desmond Tutu's Institute for Truth and Reconciliation, known as the TRC. And that was the government's way to give a voice to the victims during the trials after apartheid was disbanded in 1995. I listened to hours and hours of court hearings and stories shared. The TRC's approach was both restorative and retributive justice. Amnesty was granted to perpetrators who admitted complete disclosure of the atrocities they had committed and were remorseful. Victims were also given a platform to be heard and publicly affirmed that the violence committed against them was wrong. One of the things I discovered in this process, which shocked me, was that in most cases when victims had shared their whole stories, 
and the perpetrators, in turn, had disclosed their whole stories. The victims themselves were willing to, to forgive or grant amnesty to the perpetrators. This happened time and time again, and it was powerful. Many of the Africans I met abide by a paradigm of what's called Mbutu. It's the idea that I am because you are, or a person is not a person without other people. <clears throat> it's more than just a nice ideology or belief. It's a lifestyle of recognizing that those around you make you who you are, and you wouldn't be the same without even one other individual. It was a paradigm shift for me to witness Mbutu in everyday life. What would it look like if we knew lived out Mbutu here? What did Mbutu look like? Every Sunday in church, we would pray this prayer. God bless Africa, guide her leaders, guard her children, and give her your peace. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. This isn't just a prayer that's for your family or your community or your country, but the entire continent. What would it look like if we prayed like this regularly? South Africa's national anthem is Kosi Sekulele, God bless Africa and Hosa. It's actually the national anthem of four other African countries as well. I'm gonna play it for you now with the words of a, a poem in English on the screen for reflection. As you listen to the music and the words, drink deep. I'll leave a few moments of silence afterwards for you to think about, artistically illustrate, or write down whatever comes to you.
Living in South Africa was a paradigm shift for me in many ways. Finding a balanced voice is one of them. When it comes to using our voice for justice, it's more about an alignment between our true values and living them out and expressing them in everyday life. Living from a true voice involves much mindfulness by increasing our awareness and slowing down our lives. I continued my journey of justice at Eastern through 2008 as I graduated from undergrad and continued on in the master's counseling psychology degree with my emphasis in conflict resolution. I continued to travel to other countries and war-torn areas of the world like the Middle East and Northern Ireland and the Republic of Georgia, which is um, similar to what we might currently be aware of in Ukraine with Russia. It experienced a lot of religious and political injustices. I had a large diversity of friends and worked as an Eastern staff member in both the athletics and admissions office as the head tennis coach and co-creating and facilitating a mentoring program for students of color on campus with an African-American staff member. I became more intentional about joining with the people I felt passionate to serve by moving into the city to live in West Philly. And I became more of a political activist. Herein is the earlier reference of my arrest. It was the coldest day of the year in 2005, December, and I went with some other friends from Eastern down to Washington, D.C. to join a nonviolent protest sponsored by Sojourners magazine founder Jim Wallace. We, along with 115 others, including Shane Claiborne and John Perkins, were arrested on Capitol Hill, and I posted my own bail to be released from jail after spending seven hours singing Christmas carols and swapping stories with the other protesters and police who were in charge of holding us there in, in the jail cell. It was not all fun and games, though. The consequences of my choices still hit me when I fill out job applications and have to write about it when, I, when it asks if you've ever been arrested or have a police record or when I think back to the moment of realization that once I broke the law, my rights had been taken away with the full body search and the mug shots. Or reflect on the aftermath of heading home to Kansas for Christmas and having a close family friend and a leader in, in the church who looked me in the eye and said, if you were my daughter, I would beat you. But all these experiences were in education, in peacemaking, and conflict resolution, and acquiring the skills that are needed to practice acting justly. Each time I returned from another international travel experience, I came back to the U.S. with an even broader understanding of God's call for me in bridging barriers. For now, it was not just a vision of racial reconciliation here in this country, but bridging all kinds of divisions and barriers that exist among us, both locally and globally. Grad school not only honed my experiences and skills, but it was also a much needed growing up period for me. 
After graduation, the ideals of academic life and the realities of the real world were drastically different than what I assumed they would be. I applied for the Peace Corps and Mission Year, but because of the economy, I ended up taking the first job that was offered to me, which was helping children. When gaining my degree, I never thought that this would be my clientele I would be counseling. I thought I would be working with adults and world leaders on a global level, sitting at a table with warring people groups. But instead, I was sitting on living room floors, working with children and their families in how to function in everyday life with psychological disorders and diagnoses. But this was only a temporary job and a practical financial stepping stone for me to set out and following God's call for me, right? Or at least that's what I told myself. So fast forward the tape to today. Living in Telford, Pennsylvania, with my husband, raising our son and expecting another boy in September. By this time in my projection and timeline of the vision of God's call in my life, I thought I would be living abroad married to a man of color and raising our intercultural and multiracial family while working as a conflict mediator and bringing peace and justice in a way that changed the world globally. So how did I get here? Is this an impediment or an obstacle? Did something go wrong? No, absolutely not. God is still up to the good work he began in me. Continuing on my journey of justice has brought me to the realization that for all the work I was doing externally in the areas of racial reconciliation, God was doing an internal work on me. I'm not proud to admit this. But prior to Dwayne, I didn't date men who were of the same skin color or country as me, or consider marrying them. Because I thought God's call in my life for racial, racial reconciliation looked like that. Okay, I can't see my notes. But God's plan for my journey of justice includes marrying Dwayne a white man, the work I do as an in-school counselor in North Penn, and living here in Pennsylvania. For they're all intentional parts of God's redemptive work in my life. Although it doesn't look like what I thought it would when I was 16, I'm still on that journey of justice. But now it's not just my journey, it's our journey. Like the rest of humanity, I look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. God's been changing me along the way, and the values Dwayne and I share, respect for God and a heart for the world, are more important than the amount of pigmentation in our skin or the continent we can trace our bloodlines back to. Mr. Freed and I are intentional in our partnership to raise our children and the next generation not with this legacy of racism President Obama referred to, but an awareness of it, including the privileges we have and ways we still benefit from it. We hope that we and our children will leave a legacy of liberty and justice 
and freedom for all. We are the freed family, after all. <laughs> Additionally, I recognize that my clientele work with the students in the middle schools and my children at home is the season of life God's calling me to. For I know in their lifetime the racial tides will shift, where whites will no longer be the privileged racial majority. And rather than trying to maintain the status quo, new voices and verses will need to be added in this long song of racial reconciliation in our nation. So today I'm a wife and a mother and a counselor not working for the UN or the president of Peace Corps, but working with and loving people that God crosses my path with every day. As I've been mindful and more aware of others and intentional about advocating for the oppressed when those opportunities do arise, both professionally and personally, I find I'm often inspired by the courage to act justly from the fact that I have a son who may not understand at this stage of his life, but will one day see the lifestyle of advocacy and bravery that I'm continuing to practice as a model for him to live by. Brene Brown says it well when she writes in her memoirs, The Gifts of Imperfection. We cannot give our children what we don't have. Where we are on the journey of living and loving with our whole hearts, is a much stronger indicator of parenting success than anything we can learn from a how-to book. This journey is equal parts head work and heart work. It's soul work. Cultivating a wholehearted life is like trying to reach a, it's not like trying to reach a destination. It's a journey with gifts to be discovered, like courage, compassion, and connection. Gary Halkin, founder and president of International Justice Mission, challenges parents in his book, Just Courage, to ask if they really want their children to be safe or brave. Justice in bringing liberty to those who are oppressed takes bravery. It's not safe. I wanted to be that mother, and I still do, that sets an example for my sons and other children to learn and stand up for yourself and others as you hear me speak against injustice and demonstrate conflict resolution. Some important life lessons I'm learning along the way. One, to be a world changer, you have to start local, go global. Racial reconciliation is not really about race. We're all part of the human race. It's more about finding our identity in Christ and loving others wholeheartedly by breaking down the barriers and divisions between us, just as Jesus did. Honoring other is both physical and spiritual. Like singing in a choir, there's a consciousness of community that creates living in harmony. Jackson Brown Jr. says, live so that when your children think of fairness, caring, and integrity, they think of you. The biblical story of Abraham's promise tells us that God is for all of his creation. We are blessed to be a blessing. God's promise to Abraham looked impossible, even outrageous. Abraham didn't even get the promise until he was about 80 years old, and it was another 20 years before his son was born to his barren wife, Sarah. The promise is hope for something in the future, and the blessing is the actual act of fulfilling the promise, 
by passing the promise on to our children and the next generation of those who are heirs according to the promise. John Perkins states, what we pass along is hope and a vision that can be carried forth. In the end, all of the footsteps of acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God have to lead to the cross where Christ and his freedom is found. I'm not saying we all need to go and leave or be advocates for justice who get arrested. Each of us have a song to sing or a chorus to share. Yet, withholding onto hope, we can not only overcome and achieve, but be co-creators with God and bring about something truly beautiful to behold. This hope is real and personal. Christ lived it out here on earth, and through his redemptive death and his radical resurrection, he gave us all liberty from sin's oppression. The dividing wall that separated us from God was destroyed. The curtain between the Holy of Holies and humanity was torn in two. For those who believe, we are co-heirs with Christ. As we move into this time of communion, let me remind you again of the Galatians reading, which is connected to Abraham's story, which is our story too. Our Ubuntu, humanness, and unity in Christ transcends ethnic, social, and sexual distinctions. I invite you to reflect on this and come to the table to take the bread and the cup as symbols of Christ's human- humanity, his humility, his mercy, and justice for us all. <clears throat>